0: I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. It's going to be found on page 1013 in your pew Bible if you're using that. And I'll be reading James chapter 5, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word from James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... As an example of patience and pers- suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Well, back in 2018, I was invited to preach a sermon at 10th. I don't remember the exact circumstances at the time, but from what I recall, The pastoral staff was a different composition then, and they got desperate, so they asked me. Um, Having preached in other churches in the Philadelphia Presbytery, uh, filling pulpits when needed, I was asked to do this. And after prayerful consideration, God laid on my heart to study and to preach through the book of James. Now, this is not my go-to sermon series. In fact, this is the first time that I'm ever preaching through the book of James, it might be my last as well, uh, or, or even teaching through it. But it's amazing to me how back then I had no idea where we would be in 2023. In fact, I would dare say that in your life and in my life, in this world, in our church, as I looked ahead, I had no idea where we would be. But it's amazing to me as we come to these sermons over these Time of whenever they show up, how the word of God is so appropriate and so true and so spot on for that moment. And I believe that moment is again here today in our life at 10th. It reminds us that the message and timeliness of God's word stands forever, that in his providence, he has much to say in our present situation. See, James is writing to Christians, both in the first century and in the 21st century, who are living in a broken and fallen world. They are struggling with many things. They are facing persecution. There's uncertainty, and there's struggle to live the commands of Jesus in everyday life. One subtle thread that has been developed throughout this book and now becomes very explicit here in chapter five, is this. There's a contrast between the world that we see with our our eyes, our physical world, and if we will be enmeshed in that world and live only for that world, or if we will, through eyes of faith, look to where God has us looking, to Jesus Christ and to live by faith. In fact, turn back to chapter one. Chapter one, verse two presents this paradigm of the contrast between the temporal and the eternal, the visible and the invisible, the short-lived and the eternal. Look at verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. James has spent the last four and a half chapters unpacking this. And when he comes to this again today, he's going to say, this is what I've been saying all along. You see, regardless of what historical era we live in, one recurring fundamental question to every human is this. Will I live for today and for my very short-lived gains in a disappointment-filled life? Or will I fix my eyes of faith on Jesus, the one who loved me and gave himself for me? Will I live for my agenda and my purposes? Or will I entrust myself to God and his purposes even when I don't feel like it? Will I bask in what Jesus has done for us more than we could ever ask and imagine? Of what he has done for us. Well, again, let's look at chapter 5 to get the context. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, that we looked at earlier, it sets the stage for this. It presents to us this group of people who are living for the here and now. Look at the things that they are doing. Again, they're described as rich, but as we said when we went through this, riches in and of themselves are not evil. But what they are doing is they are using their riches to live for this life now and only this life. Look at verse two. They are gathering riches that are now rotting. They have gathered garments that are now moth-eaten. Gold and silver will become corroded. Because they are doing this, they are gaining their riches through uh, extortion, through fraud. They are living only for the things of this world. They were living in luxury and self-indulgence in verse 5. And the eternal perspective comes in because it says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. There is coming a day when God will set all things right. And in verse 6, we get a glimpse of that person, the righteous person, the righteous man, if we were to capitalize the. Jesus did not resist those who tortured him, who beat him, who crucified him but yet rather prayed for their forgiveness because he did not resist him. Why? Because he provided that sacrifice for you and for me. In verse uh, chapter four, verse 14, he already reminds us that human life is but a mist that appears for a time and vanishes. As we continue in verse seven to 10, we're reminded again of in this brief world, this brief earthly pilgrimage, that we are called to patient perseverance. And James gives us these clear examples that we can see and relate to. Look, if you will, in chapter 5, verse 7. He uses the farmer who cultivates the land, who plants the seed, who applies the fertilizer, who does everything that he can, but then his job is to wait. He cannot get in the ground and take those seeds and germinate them and make them grow. He waits. We see then in verse 10, of the prophets, this broad category, especially in the Old Testament, of those who spoke in the name of the Lord and for speaking the word of the Lord to the people they often received, not rewards, not riches in this world, but derision, punishment, even death. How could they do this? Well, they had to wait they had to wait in long pronouncements if they would pronounce things and then see that the word of the Lord came true. So too, we wait. We wait as they waited. You see, pa- patience is something we develop. It's something we nurture. It's something that we are refined in. But the situation that we are refined in patience is in times of Waiting. So I would say that waiting is the disposition or the expression of patient perseverance. So as we turn to verse 11 today, I want us to consider three things. First, these verses tell us of the importance of waiting, often in very difficult situations and times of our life. And to illustrate this, James will point to the life of Job in verse 11. Second, in our waiting, we are called to examine the use of our tongue while we wait in this period of waiting. Third and finally, he gives some practical examples of what church community life will look like to those who wait. So, first of all, wise waiting in difficult situations. Second, wise waiting in our words. And third, wise waiting in community. Okay, so first of all, verse 11 this call for waiting even in the midst of difficult circumstances. I'll read verse 11 again. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. About a month ago, somebody asked me if my next sermon series, if there is one to preach through Job, and so I'm calling this my Cliff Notes version of Job. If you want to turn to chapter one, I'm going to just kind of look through the first two chapters of Job, kind of skim them. Job chapter one, one of the oldest, earliest books of the Bible. Job is described as one who fears God. He not only persevered in faith in God, but he also would offer sacrifices for his children in case they had sinned. And yet, we're told in chapter one and in chapter two, In God's providence, by God's design, by God's decree, the things of this temporal world that Job had accumulated were taken from him. His flocks were taken away by a marauding army. His children were in a house and a strong wind came and blew the house and it crushed all of his children and they died. Everything that he had had was now taken from him. In fact, things got so desperate for Job that we're told in chapter 1 and 2 is that he was afflicted with boils, some kind of skin disease, and to get relief, he would take uh, pieces of pottery and scrape the boils to get relief. So you think your life is hard today. Job was received much more. And yet, what was his response to this? Everything that he had worked for, everything that he had achieved, success in this world. Listen to what he says in Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. He didn't say, why God? Yet, he will get there. But his first reaction when this happens is, he worshipped. Verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22 gives a summary of this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. At the end of chapter 2, Job now enters his period of waiting. He has three friends, we'll call them friends, air quote friends, because they come and sit with him and try to give him advice. But the first thing they do is they come and they wait together. They sit in silence for seven days and seven nights. Try that sometime. I'm sure it would be almost impossible for us to do. From chapter 3 to chapter 37, these friends enter into a debate with Job. They try to pin it on him that perhaps he had sinned, perhaps he had done something. And Job is saying over and over, I have not done anything. It is God's decision. In his waiting, he has friends who are not giving him good advice, and yet he cries out to God. Look at what he says in Job chapter 6, verse 8. In his struggle of faith... As he even questions God without sin, without blaming God, he says this Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. Verse 11, he says, What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? And yet, this is exactly what he does. He has to wait. He has to wait until chapter 38 when God appears. The true God of Scripture confronts Job. And Job has been asking questions of God the whole book. And now God asks Job question after question which Job could not answer. You see, in, in this time, Job is worshiping God in his struggles and he's waiting. You see, waiting on God is one of the hallmarks of Christian's in every age, waiting when things seem difficult, when we would rather have things resolved instantly. God does not work that way. Besides Job and the farmer and the prophets mentioned in this passage, there are countless examples of scripture in scripture of people who've had to wait and wait and wait. Think about Abraham and Sarah announced that Abraham would have a son of promise in his old age and Abraham sounds says great and he waits and he waits 25 years he waits for Isaac to be born Moses led a rebellious people in the wilderness for 40 years so much so that during that time he becomes frustrated himself and sins against God and so he himself could not enter the promised land he had to wait David and the many psalmists cry out frequently in the psalms, oh Lord, how long, how long, oh Lord, will you remain far off? Where are you, God? And yet they always come back and say, you're timing, you're doing something here. Or in the New Testament, in Mark chapter six, we have Jesus praying on a mountainside and the disciples take a boat and they go out. It's probably about evening, probably around six o'clock p.m., And all night, it says in the ESV, about dawn. So from sunset to about dawn, they're straining against the oars, and then Jesus comes on the water. Why didn't Jesus show up sooner? Why did he let them struggle all night? Why did he make them wait? Because he wanted to bring them to the end of themselves and to show that he is sufficient. You see, the answer that they all eventually came to is what Job declares in chapter 42. So do turn there. It's on page 446 in your Bibles. It's amazing to me how the words of James are borne out in Job 42. So look with me there. See, at the end of his waiting, when God has put us through difficulty and brought us through the other side, look at what Job says in, in chapter 42, verse 2. I know, speaking to God, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Yes, we focus on the fact that at the end of this book, Job receives back even more than he had before. He received back his physical possessions. But what he gained through this very difficult time that you and I cannot understand how deeply he struggled was that he received communion with his God. Rather than physical possessions, he received spiritual blessing to know who God was, to know God's greatness, to know God's mercy that will never fade away like earthly possessions. It points to the work of Jesus Christ that is greater and bigger than what is immediately in front of us. See, he causes us to wait so that when we eventually wait, not for a resolution, but to wait on him to know him more, to see his power and all sufficiency. We wait and we worship. See, I know many of us are in a period of waiting waiting for a doctor's report. Waiting for a resolution in a personal relationship that has gone astray. Very difficult times. We have varying degrees of waiting. Sometimes it's for something small, sometimes it's for something big. Perhaps you're like Job, who feels that when he cries out, his prayers go no further than the ceiling, they just go into a void. You may have had serious discussions with God this week. And what I love about Job, too, is that he can question God. He he can wrestle with God. Christianity alone as a religion says we can talk to our God and to talk intently to him. But sometimes God's most frequent answer and the hardest answer is to wait. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that's easy for you to say. You preach the Bible and you're a Bible teacher and all that stuff. It's not any easier for me. Sometimes I don't believe this either. Sometimes I think that God should step in, just do something right now, and fix it. See, you and I will not always feel that these words that Job utters are true. But what it does show is that the God who stands behind these words, this confession that you can do whatever you want and without sin and without fault, is for our good. You see, the one who stands behind these words is called faithful And true, and he will work his purposes for his glory and our good, even when we don't see it. So, will we, like Job, worship in our waiting? Will we individually and collectively wrestle with how best to proceed according to Scripture as we wait? So, if we're to wait wisely in these difficult situations, James secondly turns to the fact that as we wait, we need to have wise words. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, on initial reading, it seems like this is a sudden shift. Um, Some commentators have difficulty with how it fits in. But I think it fits in well with the overall text. If we're to wait, what does it mean? Well, first of all, what does he mean by do not swear? I want to talk about what he's not saying. In, in our modern context, it might be swearing is saying a bad word. Rather, what James has in mind has been variously translated as vows or oaths or swearing in. Just some examples of where we do this today. Earlier this month, in the city of Philadelphia, all the newly elected officials and judges were sworn in. They had a swearing-in ceremony where they put their hand on a Bible and affirmed that they would do their job to the best of their ability, so help them God, which is a good thing. They're appealing to God. We see this in modern wedding ceremonies where a husband and wife, in the presence of God, will exchange rings and make vows to each other. Just earlier in this service, we had deacons who took vows for their office. Our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, only has 33 chapters, and yet one of them, chapter 22, deals with vows and oaths. So James is not condemning all and every swearing or oath taking. In this context, what is being challenged is what I will categorize James is saying as bold declarations, things we declare and affirm, and this is key, apart from God. I would say that this is a good time of year to talk about bold declarations if you partook in New Year's resolutions, which are oftentimes bold declarations and probably broken by now we realize how well-meaning we can be and we can say, I'm going to do something, and yet we don't follow through. But how many times and how easy is it for us to make these bold declarations in times of waiting when we're not patient or relying on God's timing? In fact, one commentator put it this way, the gist of this verse at the beginning. Above all other signs of impatience, Swear not. You see, throughout his letter, James has already spent considerable time talking about the right use of our tongues. In chapter 1, verse 19, we are told to be quick to listen and slow to speak. How much more in time of waiting? Chapter 3, there's an extended teaching on the proper or improper use of our tongues. Chapter 4, verse 11, we're not to speak evil against our fellow Christians. And in verse 16 of chapter four, we're told not to boast. There's no doubt that this verse also, James has in mind what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse 33. And again, chapter five of Matthew is Jesus' sermon on the mount. It's his declaration that if you want to be one of my followers, this is how you're to live. If you're to enter the kingdom of God, you must be poor in spirit. You must be broken. You must be humble. You must live this way. And in that context, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You see, the type of oath and vow that Jesus, and then repeated in James, is addressing and saying we should not do, is that kind of oath and bold declaration that focuses on myself, my resolution, my words, my desired outcome leaving no room for waiting and reliance on God to work. So let me ask you, what bold declarations have we made in this past week that were not seasoned with prayer and humility and waiting? If we're honest with ourselves, we make these bold declarations all the time. I often hear things like this, not that you've ever said this, but I'm never talking to that person again. How'd that work for you? You made that bold declaration. But, but again, it was not prayerful, it was not seasoned with the gospel. You see, this is the final negative in James' letter. What we're not to do. We are not to rely on our own words and to accomplish things. We are not to have rash and prayerless pronouncements, but rather humbly rely on God's timing in our waiting. Let me illustrate this from Job Chapter 42, turn back to Job 42. He comes to the end here where he repents of his bold declarations that he uttered in his time of waiting. In verse three, he he recalls God's word to him when God says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? To which Job responds, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 4, again recalling God's word to him Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. To which Job responds in verse 5 I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, I said things in my waiting and in my frustration that I did not know, I will continue to worship and repent. So how can we in our difficult situations, in our temptation to use rash speech and not wise speech, live? Well, this goes to the third point in James, that we do not do this in isolation. We do this as a community in Christ, his body, the church. We are individuals and collectively in waiting in that time between times when we long for his return, living in the here and now, but looking for the eternal reality to be made known. Now, our waiting is not in action. It's not just sitting around and waiting for God to work but it's doing the next necessary spiritual task put before us. You see, verse 12 gives us a hint that this letter is about to come to a close. As is often in the epistles, these letters in the New Testament, there's usually a place for kind of final thoughts, um, kind of wrap up, kind of, hey guys, here's some final thoughts as I conclude. And that's why he begins verse 12 with, above all. Not that verse 12 is any more important than any other verse in the letter, but it is James' way of saying, these are my closing thoughts, and this is how you are to live in community. Look at verse 13. I'll read verses 13 to 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You see, throughout the throughout the New Testament, there are these what are known as one another commands in Scripture that can only be accomplished in the church. Weak and frail are as we are as individuals. We need each other as we gather weekly, as collectively weak, frail individuals. You see, waiting wisely is not just sitting around doing nothing, but it's actively ministering to each other collectively as we live out the commands of the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. Notice in this these verses, it's the anyone applied to Christians. Yes, there is one that applies to the elders and their work of ministerial work, but is anyone applies to Christians. You see, all these activities that we do on a Sunday morning, singing, ministering to each other, visiting the sick, anointing with oil, confessing our sins, all flow from humble, God-dependent, prayer which will be the emphasis of our next sermon from James this prayer is the opposite of bold declarations prayer is taking my desires and submitting them to God's will saying not my will be done but yours be done as we prayed earlier and saying help me as i wait so turn back to job one more time to job 42 Get this, Job embodies James chapter 5 in verse 7 of Job 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have spoken, not, not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told him. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So get this. Job is told to pray for these three men who spent the last number of chapters, who knows how long in their dialogue, counseling him with bad counsel so that the Lord would forgive them of their folly. Again, he could have wallowed in his resentment. He could have thrown a pity party. He could have said, not those guys. Uh Uh-uh, get somebody else to do it. He does exactly what James commands us to do, to pray for one another. To intercede for each other. And the Lord accepts Job's prayer. So, how are you and I handling waiting this morning? See, we're stuck in that in between time when we desire so deeply for answers and for things that are broken to be mended, things that are far apart to be brought near. Rather than respond with complaining or prayerlessness in our own self-focused, bold declarations, are we going to live out what James commands us? Are we going to pray for each other? Are we going to confess our sins to each other? Are we going to have a one-another ministry mindset that is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Perhaps one of the best summary verses that I can think of of bringing this all together and even to express how you may be feeling right now in our waiting. It's a reminder of Paul from Romans chapter 8. And one of the things that I, I will always commend 10th for is the memorization of Romans 8 for our children to recite that together. In Romans chapter 8, this rich spiritual heritage and this amazing chapter in Scripture, this is what Paul says in verse 23. We Groan inwardly. Some of you right now, myself, we're, we're groaning inwardly as we eagerly, uh, wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now, hope is that is seen as no hope, right? If you see something, you don't hope for it because it's right there. The things of this world that we can touch and see and possess. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, this is to show that it's not from my strength, not from my bold declarations, not from my conniving, but from God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you see how this parallels how Job arrives at the end? He groaned in his waiting. Yet he spoke of this redeemer who would stand for him, who would vindicate him. You and I also groan, but it's not a hopeless groaning. We do not groan alone. The Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us according to the will of God. Then and only then can Paul make his famous pronouncement in verse 28 that is often separated from this context. But it helps us understand what God does in our waiting. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, our waiting and our groaning, our difficult situations are not to get resolution to them, but to form Christ in us, to help each other see that we are needy and we go and we do the next thing and we help each other see that on a daily and a weekly basis. Let me close with just one example from history. And many could be given. But in the aftermath of World War II, a young Russian captain in the Russian army was sentenced to prison. His offense was he sent a private letter to someone that was intercepted that criticized Joseph Stalin. For this, he was sentenced to serve eight years in the Russian gulag, the Russian prison system, one of the worst that has ever existed. He entered an atheist and he waited and he waited. And in his waiting, Alexander Solzhenitsyn groaning led him to understand the good news of Jesus. And we would say, how can, you, how can you do that in prison? Well, listen to what he said. He wrote years later of his account in the gulag. He could actually say this, quote, I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison. And he says it again in case you missed it. Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. How can someone who was tortured, who was starved, who barely had any clothing in the cold Russian winters say such things? Because in his years of waiting, Solzhenitsyn received spiritual deliverance and spiritual comfort and spiritual building up, and not just merely being released physically from prison. He was led to examine his own heart to see himself for who he really was, which turned him to the gospel of Jesus. That's what he said elsewhere. says elsewhere, he said, in the intoxication of youthful success, I had felt myself to be infallible and I was therefore cruel. Basically, he's saying it took something as hard and as harsh as prison in the gulag to, to get me out of myself. You see, his difficult situation led him not away from God, but to God. In prison, he could see himself for who he really was and his need of a redeemer. And it was preparing him for his next, for his life work, of challenging the godlessness and ruthlessness of communism. And for his efforts and for his writing and for the work that he did, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1970 for literature. And his persevering faith has been cited by many historians as a key factor in the downfall of the Soviet Union. You see, in our waiting, we are reminded moment by moment of the fact that in our difficulties, in our struggles, in our desire to just vent with our mouths and say, make these bold declarations, that we are not spiritual orphans on our own. God has not abandoned us in these situations. Rather, we should remind ourselves to live moment by moment by faith in the resurrection power of Jesus as he enlivens our groaning soul. I recently had someone express it in this way. Waiting is not so much a punishment, which we sometimes think it is, but preparation for the next thing that God is strengthening you for in community. Do we trust his goodness and mercy enough to believe that he is a good God, that he remains faithful in the midst of our suffering? Can we affirm what the hymn writer writes? When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, in our weakness, in our waiting, in our frailty, turn our eyes from the temporal things of this world that so often disappoint and turn to dust. Fix our eyes on your son Jesus. In his powerful name we pray, amen.